Section 33 of Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth, Volumes 1 and 2, by Lucy Aiken. Chapter 20, 1582-1587, Part 4. On her first appearance, she renewed her protestation against the competence of the tribunal. Bromley, Lord Chancellor, answered her, showing the jurisdiction of the English law over all persons within the country, and the commissioners ordered both the objection and the reply to be registered, as if to save the point of law, but it does not appear that it was ever referred for decision to any other authority. Intercepted letters, authenticated by the testimony of her secretaries, formed the chief evidence against Mary. From these the Crown lawyers showed, and she did not attempt to deny, that she had suffered her correspondence to address her as Queen of England, that she had endeavoured by means of English fugitives to incite the Spaniards to invade the country, and that she had been negotiating at Rome the terms of a transfer of all her claims, present and future, to the King of Spain, disinheriting by this unnatural act her own schismatic son. The further charge of having concurred in the late plot for the assassination of Elizabeth she strongly denied and attempted to disprove, but it stood on equally good evidence with all the rest, and in spite of some suggestions of which her modern partisans have endeavoured to give her the benefit, there appears no solid foundation on which an impartial inquirer can rest any doubt of the fact. The deportment of Mary on this trying emergency exhibited somewhat of the dignity, but more of the spirit and adroitness for which she has been famed. She justified her negotiations, or intrigues, with foreign princes, on the ground of her inalienable right to employ all the means within her power for the recovery of that liberty of which she had been cruelly and unjustly deprived. With great effrontery she persisted in denying that she had ever entertained with Babington any correspondence whatever, and she urged that his pretending to receive, or having in fact received, letters written in her cipher, was no conclusive proof against her, since it was the same which she used in her French correspondence, and might have fallen into other hands. But finding herself hard-pressed by evidence on this part of the subject, she afterwards hazarded a rash attempt to fix on Walsingham the imputation of having suborned witnesses and forged letters for her destruction. The aged minister, greatly moved by this attack upon his character, immediately rose and asserted his innocence in a manner so solemn, and with such circumstantial corroboration, as compelled her to retract the accusation with an apology. On some mention of the Earl of Arundel and Lord William Howard his brother, which occurred in the intercepted letters, she sighed, and exclaimed with a feeling which did her honour, Alas, what has not the noble house of Howard suffered for my sake? End quote. On the whole, her presence of mind was remarkable, though the quick sensibilities of her nature could not be withheld from breaking out at times, either in vehement sallies of anger or long fits of weeping, as the sense of past and present injuries, or of her forlorn and afflicted state and the perils and sufferings which still menaced her, rose by turns upon her agitated and affrighted mind. The commissioners, after a full hearing of the cause, quitted Fotheringay, and meeting again in the Star Chamber, summoned before them the two secretaries, who voluntarily confirmed on oath the whole of their former depositions. After this they proceeded to a unanimous sentence of death against Mary, which was immediately transmitted to the Queen for her approbation. On the same day a declaration was published on the part of the commissioners and judges, importing that the sentence did in no manner derogate from the titles and honours of the King of Scots. Most of the subsequent steps taken by Elizabeth in this unhappy business are marked with the features of that intense selfishness which, scrupling nothing for the attainment of its own mean objects, seldom fails by exaggerated efforts and overstrained manoeuvres to expose itself to detection and merited contempt. 
never had she enjoyed a higher degree of popularity than at this juncture the late discoveries had opened to view a series of popish machinations which had fully justified in the eyes of an alarmed and irritated people even those previous measures of severity on the part of her government which had most contributed to provoke these attempts the queen was more than ever the heroine of the protestant party and the image of those imminent and hourly perils to which her zeal in the good cause had exposed her inflamed to enthusiasm the sentiment of loyalty on occasion of the detection of babington's plot the whole people gave themselves up to rejoicings sixty bonfires says the chronicler were kindled between ludgate and charing cross and tables were set out in the open streets at which happy neighbours feasted together the condemnation of the queen of scots produced similar demonstrations after her sentence had been ratified by both houses of parliament it was thought expedient probably by way of feeling the pulse of the people that solemn proclamation of it should be made in london by the lord mayor and city officers and by the magistrates of the county in westminster the multitude untouched by the long misfortunes of an unhappy princess born of the blood royal of england and heiress to its throne insensible too of everything arbitrary unprecedented or unjust in the treatment to which she had been subjected received the notification of her doom with expressions of triumph and exultation truly shocking bonfires were lighted church-bells were rung and every street and lane throughout the city resounded with psalms of thanksgiving it is manifest therefore that no deference for the opinions or feelings of her subjects compelled elizabeth to hesitate or to dissemble in this matter had she permitted the execution of the sentence simply and without delay all orders of men attached to the protestant establishment would have approved it as an act fully justified by state expediency and the law of self-defence and though misgivings might have arisen in the minds of some on cooler reflection when alarm had subsided and the bitterness of satiated revenge had begun to make itself felt these quote-unquote compunctious visitings could have led to no consequences capable of alarming her it must have been felt as highly inequitable to reproach the queen when all was past and irrevocable for the consent which she had afforded to a deed sanctioned by a law ratified by the legislature and applauded by the people and from which both church and state had reaped the fruits of security and peace foreign princes also would have respected the vigour of this proceeding they would not have been displeased to see themselves spared by a decisive act the pain of making disregarded representations on such a subject and a secret consciousness that few of their number would have scrupled under all the circumstances to take like vengeance on a deadly foe and rival might further have contributed to reconcile them to the fact even as it was pope sixtus v himself could scarcely restrain his expressions of admiration at the completion of so strong a measure as the final execution of the sentence his holiness had indeed a strange passion for capital punishments and he is said to have envied the queen of england the glorious satisfaction of cutting off a royal head a sentiment not much more extraordinary from such a personage than the ardent desire which he is reported to have expressed that it were possible for him to have a son by this heretic princess because the offspring of such parents could not fail he said to make himself king of the world but it was the weakness of elizabeth to imagine that an extraordinary parade of reluctance and the interposition of some affected delays would change in public opinion the whole character of the deed which she contemplated and preserve to her the reputation of feminine mildness and sensibility without the sacrifice of that great revenge on which she was secretly bent the world however when it has no interest in deceiving itself is too wise to accept of words instead of deeds or in opposition to them and the sole result of her artifices was to aggravate in the eyes of all mankind the criminality of the act by giving it rather the air of a treacherous and cold-blooded murder than of solemn execution done upon a formidable culprit by the sentence of offended laws 
the parliament which elizabeth had summoned to partake the odium of mary's death met four days after the judges had pronounced her doom and was opened by commission a unanimous ratification of the sentence by both houses was immediately carried and followed by an earnest address to her majesty for its publication and execution to which she returned a long and laboured answer she began with the expression of her fervent gratitude to providence for the affections of her people adding protestations of her love towards them and of her perfect willingness to have suffered her own life still to remain exposed as a mark to the aim of enemies and traitors had she not perceived how intimately the safety and well-being of the nation was connected with her own with regard to the queen of scots she said so severe had been the grief which she had sustained from her recent conduct that the fear of renewing this sentiment had been the cause and the sole cause of her withholding her personal appearance at the opening of that assembly where she knew that the subject must of necessity become matter of discussion and not as had been suggested the apprehension of any violence to be attempted against her person yet she might mention that she had actually seen a bond by which the subscribers bound themselves to procure her death within a month so far was she from indulging any ill-will against one of the same sex the same rank the same race as herself in fact her nearest kinswoman that after having received full information of certain of her machinations she had secretly written with her own hand to the queen of scots promising that on a simple confession of her guilt in a private letter to herself all should be buried in oblivion she doubted not that the ancient laws of the land would have been sufficient to reach the guilt of her who had been the great artificer of the recent treasons and she had consented to the passing of the late statute not for the purpose of ensnaring her but rather to give her warning of the danger in which she stood her lawyers from their strict attachment to ancient forms would have brought this princess to trial within the county of stafford had compelled her to hold up her hand at the bar and have caused twelve jurymen to pass judgment upon her but to her it had appeared more suitable to the dignity of the prisoner and the importance of the cause to refer the examination to the judges nobles and counsellors of the realm happy if even thus she could escape that ready censure to which the conspicuous station of sovereigns on all occasions exposed them the statute by requiring her to pronounce judgment upon her kinswoman had involved her in anxiety and difficulties amid all her perils however she must remember with gratitude and affection the voluntary association into which her subjects had entered for her defence it was never her practice to decide hastily on any matter in a case so rare and important some interval of deliberation must be allowed her and she would pray heaven to enlighten her mind and guide it to the decision most beneficial to the church to the state and to the people twelve days after the delivery of this speech her majesty sent a message to both houses entreating that her parliament would carefully reconsider the matter and endeavour to hit upon some device by which the life of the queen of scots might be rendered consistent with her own safety and that of the country her faithful parliament however soon after acquainted her that with their utmost diligence they had found it impracticable to form any satisfactory plan of the kind she desired and the speakers of the two houses ended a long representation of the mischiefs to be expected from any arrangement by which mary would be suffered to continue in life with a most earnest and humble petition that her majesty would not longer deny to the united wishes and entreaties of all england what it would be iniquitous to refuse to the meanest individual the execution of justice elizabeth after pronouncing a second long harangue designed to display her own clemency to upbraid the malice of her libellers and to refute the suspicion which her conscience no doubt helped her to anticipate that all this irresolution was but feigned and that the decisions of the two houses were influenced by a secret acquaintance with her wishes again dismissed their petitions without any positive answer soon after however she permitted herself to authorize the proclamation of the sentence 
and sent Lord Buckhurst and Beale, clerk of the council, to announce it to Mary herself. During the whole of this time the kings of France and of Scotland were interceding by their ambassadors for the pardon of the illustrious prisoner. How the representations of Henry III were received we do not find minutely recorded. But Elizabeth knew that they might be safely disregarded, that the monarch was himself too much a sufferer by the arrogance and ambition of the House of Guise to be very strenuous in his friendship towards any one so nearly connected with it and it is even said that, while a sense of decorum extorted from him in public some energetic expressions of the interest taken by him in the fate of a sister-in-law and queen-dowager of France, a sentiment of regard for Elizabeth, his friend and ally, prompted him to counsel her, through a secret agent, to execute the sentence with the least possible delay. Of the treatment experienced by the master of Grey, the envoy of James, we gain some particulars from an original memorial drawn up by himself. He appears to have reached Ware on December 24th, whence he sent to desire Keith and Douglas, the resident Scotch ambassadors, to announce to the Queen his approach, and she voluntarily promised that the life of Mary should be spared till his proposals were heard. His reception in London was somewhat ungracious. No one was sent to welcome or convoy him, and it was ten days before he and Sir Robert Melville, his coadjutor, were admitted to an audience. Elizabeth's first address to them was, quote, A thing long looked for should be welcomed when it comes. I would now see your master's officers, end quote. Gray desired first to be assured that the cause for which those offers were made was, quote-unquote, still extant, that is, that the life of Mary was still safe, and should be so till their mission had been heard. She answered, quote, I think it be extant yet, but I will not promise for an hour, end quote. They then brought forward certain proposals, not here recited, which she rejected with contempt, and calling in Leicester, the Lord Admiral, and Hatton, quote-unquote, very despitefully repeated them in hearing of them all. Gray then propounded his last offer, that the Queen of Scots should resign all her claims upon the English succession to her son, by which means the hopes of the Papists would, as he said, be cut off. The terms in which this overture was made Elizabeth affected not to understand. Leicester explained their meaning to be that the King of Scots should be put in his mother's place. Quote, "'Is it so?' the Queen answered. "'Then I put myself in a worse case than before. By God's passion that were to cut my own throat, and for a duchy or an earldom to yourself,' you, or such as you, would cause some of your desperate knaves to kill me. No, by God, he shall never be in that place. Gray answered, quote, He craves nothing of your majesty, but only of his mother. Quote, that, said Leicester, were to make him party, or rival or adversary, to the queen my mistress. Quote, he will be far more party, replied Gray, if he be in her place through her death. Her majesty exclaimed that she should not have a worse in his mother's place, and added, quote, tell your king what good I have done for him in holding the crown on his head since he was born, and that I mind, or intend, to keep the league that now stands between us, and if he break it, it shall be a double fault. With this speech she would have left them, but they persisted in arguing the matter further, though in vain. Gray then requested that Mary's life might be spared for fifteen days. The queen refused. Sir Robert Melville begged for only eight days. She said not for an hour, and so quitted them. After this, the Scotch ambassadors assumed a tone of menace, but the perfidious Grey secretly fortified Elizabeth's resolution with the proverb, quote, the dead cannot bite, end quote, and undertook soon to pacify, in any event, the anger of his master, whose minion he at this time was. No sooner had Elizabeth silenced with this show of inflexibility all the pleadings or menaces by which others had attempted to divert her from her fatal aim, than she began, as in the affair of the French marriage, to feel her own resolution waver. It appears unquestionable that to affected delays a real hesitation succeeded. 
when her pride was no longer irritated by opposition she had leisure to survey the meditated deed in every light and as it rose upon her view in all its native deformity anxious fears for her own fame and credit yet untainted by any crime and perhaps genuine scruples of conscience forcibly assailed her resolution but her ministers deeply sensible that both she and they had already gone too far to recede with reputation or with safety encountered her growing reluctance with a proportional increase in the vehemence of their clamours for what they called and perhaps thought justice all the hazards to which her excess of clemency might be imagined to expose her were conjured up in the most alarming forms to repel her scruples a plot for her assassination was disclosed to which the french ambassador was ascertained to have been privy rumours were raised of invasions and insurrections and it may be suspected that the queen really alarmed in the first instance by the representations of her council voluntarily contributed afterwards to keep up these delusions for the sake of terrifying the minds of men into an approval of the deed of blood at length on february first fifteen eighty seven her majesty ordered secretary davison to bring her the warrant which had remained ready drawn in his hands for some weeks and having signed it she told him to get it sealed with the great seal and in his way to call on walsingham and tell him what she had done quote, though she added smiling i fear he will die of grief when he hears of it end quote this minister being then sick. Davison obeyed her directions, and the warrant was sealed. The next day he received a message from her, purporting that he should forbear to carry the warrant to the Lord Keeper till further orders. Surprised and perplexed, he immediately waited upon her to receive her further directions, when she chid him for the haste he had used in this matter, and talked in a fluctuating and undetermined matter respecting it, which greatly alarmed him. On leaving the Queen, he immediately communicated the circumstances to Burley and Hatton, and thinking it safest for himself to rid his hands of the warrant he delivered it up to burleigh by whom it had been drawn and from whom he had at first received it a council was now called consisting of such of the ministers as either the queen herself or davison had made acquainted with the signing of the warrant and it was proposed that without any further communication with her majesty it should be sent down for immediate execution to the four earls to whom it was directed davison appears to have expressed some fears that he should be made to bear the blame of this step but all his fellow-counsellors then present joined to assure him that they would share the responsibility. It was also said that Her Majesty had desired of several that she might not be troubled respecting any of the particulars of the last dismal scene. Consequently it was impossible that she could complain of their proceeding without her privity. By these arguments Davison was seduced to give his concurrence, and Beale, a person noted for the vehemence of his attachment to the Protestant cause and to the title of the Countess of Hartford, was dispatched with the instrument in obedience to which mary underwent the fatal stroke on february eighth the news of this event was received by elizabeth with the most extraordinary demonstrations of astonishment grief and anger her countenance changed her voice faltered and she remained for some moments fixed and motionless a violent burst of tears and lamentations succeeded with which she mingled expressions of rage against her whole council they had committed she said a crime never to be forgiven they had put to death without her knowledge her dear kinswoman and sister, against whom they well knew that it was her fixed resolution never to proceed to this fatal extremity. She put on deep mourning, kept herself retired among her ladies, abandoned to sighs and tears, and drove from her presence with the most furious reproaches such of her ministers as ventured to approach her. She caused several of the councillors to be examined as to the share which they had taken in this transaction. Burley was of the number, and against him she expressed herself with such peculiar bitterness that he gave himself up for lost, and begged permission to retire with the loss of all his employments. This resignation was not accepted, 
and after a considerable interval, during which this great minister deprecated the wrath of his sovereign in letters of penitence and submission worthy only of an oriental slave, she condescended to be reconciled to a man whose services she felt to be indispensable. But the manes of Mary, or the indignation of her son, could not be appeased, it seems, without a sacrifice, and a fit victim was at hand. From some words dropped by Lord Burley on his examination, it had appeared that it was the declaration of Davison respecting the sentiments of the Queen, as expressed to himself, which had finally decided the Council to send down the warrant, and on this ground proceedings were instituted against the unfortunate secretary. He was stripped of his office, sent to the Tower in spite of the warm and honest remonstrances of Burley, and after several examinations subjected to a process in the Star Chamber for a twofold contempt first in revealing her majesty's counsels to others of her ministers secondly in giving up to them an instrument which she had committed to him in special trust and secrecy to be kept in case of any sudden emergency which might require its use davison demanded that his own examination which with that of burleigh formed the whole evidence against him should be read entire instead of being picked and garbled by the crown lawyers but this piece of justice the queen's counsel refused him on the ground that they contained matter unfit to be divulged he was found guilty, and sentenced to a fine of ten thousand marks, and imprisonment during the Queen's pleasure, by judges who at the same time expressed a high opinion both of his abilities and his integrity, and who certainly regarded his office as nothing more than an error of judgment or want of due caution. Elizabeth ordered a copy of his sentence to be immediately transmitted to the King of Scots, as triumphant evidence of that perfect innocence in the tragical accident of his mother's death, of which she had already made solemn protestation. James complied so far with obvious motives of policy as to accept her excuses without much inquiry, but impartial posterity will not be disposed to dismiss so readily an important and curious investigation which it possesses abundant means of pursuing. The record of Burley's examination is still extant, and so likewise is Davison's apology, a piece which was composed by himself at the time and addressed to Walsingham, who could best judge of its accuracy and which after being communicated to Camden, who has inserted an extract from it in his annals, has at length been found entire among the original papers of Sir Amias Paulet. From this authentic source we derive the following very extraordinary particulars. It was by the Lord Admiral that the Queen first sent a message to Davison, requiring him to bring the warrant for her signature. After subscribing it, she asked him if he were not heartily sorry it were done, to which he replied by a moderate and cautious approval of the act, she bade him tell the Chancellor when he carried the warrant to be sealed that he must, quote, use it as secretly as might be, end quote. She then signed other papers which he had brought, dispatching them all, quote, with the best disposition and willingness that could be, end quote. Afterwards she recurred to the subject, mentioned that she had delayed the act so long that the world might see, quote, that she had not been violently or maliciously drawn into it, end quote, but that she had all along perceived the necessity of it to her own security. She then said that she would have done it as secretly as might be, and not in the open court or green of the castle, but in the hall. Just as Davison was gathering up his papers to depart, quote, she fell into some complaint of Sir Amias Paulet, and others that might have eased her of this burden, end quote, and she desired that he would yet, quote, deal with Secretary Walsingham to write jointly to Sir Amias and Sir Drew Drury to sound them in this matter, aiming still at this, that it might be so done as the blame might be removed from herself, end quote. This nefarious commission Davison strangely consented to execute, though he declares that he had always before refused to meddle therein, quote, upon sundry of Her Majesty's motions, end quote, as a thing which he utterly disapproved, and though he was fully persuaded that the wisdom and integrity of Sir Amias would render the application fruitless. The Queen repeated her injunctions of secrecy in the matter, and he departed. 
he went to Walsingham, told him that the warrant was signed for executing the sentence against the Queen of Scots, agreed with him at the same time about the letter to be written to Sir Amias for her private assassination, then got the warrant sealed, then dispatched the letter. The next morning the Queen sent him word to forbear going to the Chancellor till she had spoken with him again. He went directly to acquaint her that he had already seen him. She asked, quote, "'What needed such haste?' He pleaded her commands and the danger of delay. The Queen particularized some other form in which she thought it would be safer and better for her to have the thing done. Davison answered that the just and honourable way would, he thought, be the safest and the best, if she meant to have it done at all. The Queen made no reply, but went to dinner. It appears from another statement of Davison's case, also drawn up by himself, that it was on this very day, without waiting either for Paulet's answer or for more explicit orders from Her Majesty, that he had the incredible rashness to deliver up the warrant to Burley, and to concur in the subsequent proceedings of the Council, though aware that the members were utterly ignorant of the Queen's application to Paulet. A day or two after, Her Majesty called him to her in the privy chamber, and told him, smiling, that she had been troubled with him in a dream which she had had the night before, that the Queen of Scots was put to death, and which so disturbed her that she thought she could have run him through with a sword. He answered at first jestingly, but on recollection asked her with great earnestness whether she did not intend that the matter should go forward. She answered vehemently and with an oath that she did, but again harped upon the old string, that this mode would cast all the blame upon herself, and a better might be contrived. The same afternoon she inquired if he had received an answer from Sir Amias, which at the time he had not, but he brought it to her the next morning. It contained an absolute refusal to be concerned in any action inconsistent with justice and honour. At this the Queen was much offended. She complained of what she called the quote-unquote dainty perjury of him and others, who, contrary to their oath of association, cast the burden upon herself. Soon after she again blamed quote, the niceness of these precise fellows, end quote, but said she would have the thing done without them, and mentioned one Wingfield who would undertake it. Davison remonstrated against this design, and also represented the dangerous dilemma in which Paulet and Drury would have been placed by complying with her wishes, since if she avowed their act she took it upon herself, quote, with her infinite dishonour, If she disavowed it they were ruined. It is absolutely inconceivable how a man who understood so well the perils which these persons had skilfully avoided should have remained so blind to those which menaced himself. Yet Davison, by his own account, still suffered the Queen to go on devising new schemes for the taking off of Mary, without either acquainting her that the Privy Council had already sent off Beale with the warrant, or interfering with them to procure, if possible, the recall of this messenger of death. Even on his next interview with her, which he believes to have been on Tuesday, the very day before the execution of the sentence, when Her Majesty, after speaking of the daily peril in which she lived, swore a great oath that it was a shame for them all that the thing was not yet done, and spoke to him to write a letter to Paulet for the dispatch of the business. He contented himself with observing generally that the warrant was, he thought, sufficient, and though the Queen still inclined to think the letter requisite, he left her without even dropping a hint that it was scarcely within the limits of possibility that it should arrive before the sentence had been put in execution. Of this unaccountable imprudence the utmost advantage was taken against him by his cruel and crafty mistress, whose chief concern it had all along been to discover by what artifice she might throw the greatest possible portion of the blame from herself upon others. Davison underwent a long imprisonment. The fine, though it reduced him to beggary, was rigorously exacted. Some scanty supplies for the relief of his immediate necessities while in prison were all that Her Majesty would vouchsafe him. And neither the zealous attestations of Burley in the beginning to his merit and abilities and the importance of his public services, nor the subsequent earnest pleadings of her own beloved Essex for his restoration, 
could ever prevail with elizabeth to lay aside the appearances of perpetual resentment which she thought good to preserve against him she would neither reinstate him in office nor evermore admit him to her presence unable perhaps to bear the pain of beholding a countenance which carried with it an everlasting reproach to her conscience from the formidable responsibilities of this unprecedented action the wary walsingham had withdrawn himself by favour of an opportune fit of sickness which disabled him from taking part in anything but the application to sir amias paulet by which he could incur as he well knew no hazard a still more crafty politician leicester after throwing out in the privy council hints of her majesty's wishes which served to accelerate the decisive steps there taken had artfully contrived to escape from all further participation in their proceedings both ministers in secret letters to scotland washed their hands of the blood of mary but leicester not content with these defensive measures sought to improve the opportunity to the destruction of a rival whom he had never ceased to hate and envy to his insidious arts the temporary disgrace of burleigh is probably to be imputed and it seems to have been from the apprehension of his malignant misconstructions that the lord treasurer refused to put on paper the particulars of his defence and never ceased to implore admission to plead his cause before his sovereign in person his perseverance at length prevailed the queen saw him heard his justification and restored him to her wonted grace after which the tacit compromise between the minister and the favourite was restored that compromise by which during eight-and-twenty years each had vindicated to himself an equality of political power personal influence and royal favour with the secret enemy whom he vainly wished or hoped or plotted to displace to relate again those melancholy details of mary's closing scene on which the historians of england and of scotland as well as the numerous biographers of this ill-fated princess have exhausted all the arts of eloquence would be equally needless and presumptuous it is however important to remark that she died rather with the triumphant air of a martyr to her religion the character which she falsely assumed than with the meekness of a victim or the penitence of a culprit she bade melville tell her son that she had done nothing injurious to his rights or honour though she was actually entreated to disinherit him and had also consented to a nefarious plot for carrying him off prisoner to rome and she denied with obstinacy to the last the charge of conspiring the death of elizabeth though by her will written the day before her death she rewarded as faithful servants the two secretaries who had borne this testimony against her a spirit of self-justification so haughty and so unprincipled a perseverance in deliberate falsehood so resolute and so shameless ought under no circumstances and in no personage not even in a captive beauty and an injured queen to be confounded by any writer studious of the moral tendencies of history and capable of sound discrimination with genuine religion true fortitude or the dignity which renders misfortune respectable let due censure be passed on the infringement of morality committed by elizabeth in detaining as a captive that rival kinswoman and pretender to her crown whom the dread of still more formidable dangers had compelled to seek refuge in her dominions let it be admitted that the exercise of criminal jurisdiction over a person thus lawlessly detained in a foreign country was another sacrifice of the just to the expedient which none but a profligate politician will venture to defend and let the efforts of mary to procure her own liberty though with the destruction of her enemy and at the cost of a civil war to england be held if religion will permit justifiable or venial but let not our resentment of the wrongs or compassion for the long misfortunes of this unhappy woman betray us into a blind concurrence in eulogiums lavished by prejudice or weakness on a character blemished by many foibles stained by some enormous crimes and never under the guidance of the genuine principles of moral rectitude End of section thirty three